Welcome to NAC Chat, the National Arts Club podcast. The National Arts Club is a members club and arts nonprofit whose mission is to stimulate, foster, and promote public interest in the arts and educate the American public in the fine arts. It was founded in 1898 by Charles Decay, the head theatre critic for the New York Times. Club members have included such figures as Eleanor Roosevelt, Alfred Stieglitz, Stanford White, Will Barnett, Salman Rushdie, and Amanda Palmer. Today, our 16 arts committees present speakers and performers who share their work in fields such as fine arts, film, architecture, fashion, literature, and many more. This podcast will give an inside look to the happenings at the National Arts Club with interviewers who have worked with various committees to bring you some of the best the club has to offer. All our events are free and open to the public. You are welcome to join us at the Samuel Tilden Mansion on Gramercy Park, where the club has resided since 1906. For more information, including our calendar of events, visit our website, nationalartsclub.org, or find us on Facebook and Instagram at, of course, National Arts Club. And now, welcome to NAC Chat. Jeffrey Banks is an acclaimed menswear designer whose signature American design style has significantly impacted the entire fashion world. He worked as a design assistant to Ralph Lauren from 1971 to 1973 and Calvin Klein from 1973 to 1976. After leaving Calvin Klein, Banks launched his own namesake label in New York City in 1977, consisting of tailored clothing, dress furnishings, and sportswear. Since that time, he has been the creative design director for several highly successful private label menswear lines, including the East Island and the Metropolitan View lines for Bloomingdale's. Throughout his distinguished career, Banks has been honored for his talent and creativity with several awards, including two Cody's. As an author, Jeffrey Banks has co-authored five books, including Tartan, Romancing the Plaid, Preppy, Cultivating Ivy Style, Perry Ellis, an American Original, Norell, Master of American Fashion, and Patricia Underwood, The Way You Wear Your Hat. Jeffrey Banks, welcome to NAC Chat. We're so happy to have you with us. Thank you, David. And let's right, jump right into it. So, you were born in Washington, D.C. Mm -hmm. I'm curious if there was a particular individual who inspired you in your artistic pursuits. Well, I, I think my parents are always, I know my parents are always very supportive, both myself and my sister. Um, they really let us know that we could do anything we wanted to do as long as we were willing to work for it. Um, I always loved art, um, and I loved to draw. My mother says I could draw before I could walk. I think that's a bit hyperbole, but nonetheless, um, I do remember a sort of crystallized moment. I was five years old, and I went to my first museum. It was the Corcoran Gallery of Art. And the first thing I saw was a Degas painting of two dancers at the bar. And my mother swears that she couldn't rest me away. Even after a half an hour, I was just staring intently at this painting. And then, of course, I wanted to know everything I could find out about Degas um, and other painters and, uh, that, that I admired. Um, and, of course, there was no internet in those days, but um, I could read when I was four. So I was a voracious reader. Um, and um, so everything I could get my hands on to read about uh, artists, I did. And one of the things that kind of deterred me against becoming an artist was that um, so many of the artists that I admired uh, never achieved any sort of notoriety, fame, or financial wholeness while they were alive. Many of their their, uh, their 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 sort of great notoriety came after after they were deceased, and for a five year old that was like, no, I don't want that. Um, and so, fashion to me, in a very practical way, at a very early age, seemed to be um, this thing that you would sort of get instant gratification. I mean, if you design something, people were going to either like it or not like it, and you'd know about it right away. It wasn't you know years of 
development or years of people thinking about it or you know, years before people came back and really assessed it or something like that. So it seemed like this sort of instant gratification thing. And I designed my mother's Easter outfit. Um, at what age? At 10 years of age. At 10? At 10. My mother sews beautifully, but my mother worked for the government full time. So she didn't have a lot of time to sew. So she had a fabulous dressmaker um, whose name was Annie. And Annie could make anything from anything. I mean, a torn page from a magazine, you know, she could make a pattern from a sketch, whatever. So these two incredible women who knew how to sew listened to this 10-year-old bossy kid say, no, 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 make the bust higher, make the skirt shorter. Um, and they, you know, I sketched this banana wool jersey coat with, you know, asymmetric jet buttons with a banana raw silk sleeveless sheath dress underneath um, on pure waist. And um, she wore it very proudly on Easter Sunday and got rave reviews and the die was cast. That was it. That was it. There was, was never the turning, no turning back from that point on. Oh, that's fantastic. That's absolutely fantastic. And then at a certain point, um, you headed to New York, yes? Yes. I also told my parents in that 10th tenth, tenth year that when I grew up, I was going to live in New York, which they found to be hysterical because I'd never been to New York well, or you seen had New York. designed one outfit, so but, <laughs> you were clearly... <laughs> but, you know, I, all I knew of New, uh, New York was what I saw in the movies and on television, but I knew that was the place for me. And uh, so that summer we came up to New York for the World's Fair, and uh, the die was cast again. It was, you know, I was in love with this city, and didn't consider or dream about or think about any other place except for New York. And uh, to the point where every summer, no matter where we went on vacation, California, you know, um, Canada, it didn't matter. We had to come to New York at least for one weekend for me, you know, and I would insist we're going to see this show and we're going to that museum and you will buy tickets for that. And they listened to this bossy little kid who, you know, sort of, had his mindset um, on, on, on being a designer and being in New York. Oh, that's fantastic. And, and so when you made it a reality to actually move here, when you were an adult, um, at 10 it wouldn't work. Um, <laughs> you were very wise to wait till you were Well, I, I mean, <laughs> I do remember being like 12 or 13 and sending my sketches to the then editor of Glamour magazine and thinking um, that she was going to, you know, see these sketches and say, come to New York immediately. <laughs> you know? And when she didn't, she sent a lovely letter, you know, these are the schools I think you should consider when you consider college. And I'm like, why do I need to go to college? <laughs> <laughs> I'm going directly to the source. I, I, I was yeah, I very know. upset that she didn't offer me a job. But, right, Not that she could have, but... There's that uh, child labor thing. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And Glamour Magazine wasn't in the... <laughs> they weren't in the business of hiring designers. But be that as it may, um, I, uh, I only wanted to apply to colleges in New York. Um, my parents insisted that I applied to at least one school that was not New York, not in New York. So I applied to Rhode Island School of Design and on the application to RISD, it said, why are you applying to RISD? And I said, because my parents are making me, which I knew would ensure that I would not get in. And of course I didn't. It was the only school I did not get accepted to. Uh, but my two top choices, I was accepted on the same day in the same mailbox that were the two acceptances to Parsons and Pratt. Um, and I ended up going to both schools, not at the same time, but. Um, yes, you did. Yeah. Yes, you did. So, uh, so from the idea of I want to be a designer mm -hmm. um, in theory, and then coming to New York City, uh, enrolling in school, learning what it is to be a designer. Um, what, what was, were there any like harsh wake up calls for you or, or were they, was anything like completely different as to how you thought it was going to be? Not really. I mean, there is one missing step there and that was um, 
I worked for a clothing store in Washington. The first job I ever had, I was 15. Um, it was the premier men's store in Washington called Bridges of Georgetown. And Bridges of Georgetown was started by Dave Pensky and Rick Hinden, two guys who came out of the advertising world. Um, and they bought all their clothes in New York because they couldn't find anything stylish enough in Washington. And all of their clients used to say, where do you get your clothes? Where do you get your clothes? So that gave them the idea they should open a store, in addition to keeping their advertising agency. And of course, when I discovered it, I only wanted to buy my clothes at Bridges. And of course, Bridges was the most expensive menswear store in Washington, D.C. And you know, much to my parents' chagrin, yeah, I didn't even want to look at another store. I only wanted to look at Bridges. And I was in there shopping, uh, or looking, I should say, uh, one day when I was 15 after school. And the assistant manager, Danny Latham, came over to me and he said, um, I think you might be one of the youngest people who shops here. How old are you, like 18? And I said, no, I'm 15. He said, 15? And I said, yes. And he said, um, uh, I'm going to tell you a secret. I said, what's that? He said, we're going to open a second store. I said, yeah, I know, next year on Connecticut Avenue, the old Saks Pasternak building. And he goes, how the hell do you know that? And I said, well, it was in DNR. And he goes, you read DNR? DNR being the, the menswear equivalent to women's wear daily. And I said, yes, I've had a subscription since I was 12. And he immediately said, would you like to work for us? And I said, absolutely. That was on a Thursday night. I started on Saturday. I'd never had a job. Certainly, I'd never sold merchandise. And I have to tell you, it was the most fun I've ever had. I just loved it. I loved working with people. I loved helping men who had no clue how to dress themselves, put themselves together. I loved when their wives and girlfriends would come back the following weekend and say, I know what you did, but just do it again, because <laughs> he's never looked so good. Um, and it was, you know, it was terrific fun for me, uh, in addition to the fact that I now had a discount. So, you know, I never saw a paycheck. It always it went always right died. back to, buy, to buying clothes. Um, and that very first day, I sold more than any of the other salespeople, who were all career salespeople in their 20s and 30s on commission. I also learned a great life lesson, which is how to make friends with people who hate your guts. <laughs> so it was, uh, um, you know, I had to convince them. I'm only here one day a week, and I'm not on commission, and, you know, I'm not looking to take away your livelihood. I'm just having fun. Um, and it was through David and Ricky uh, at Bridges, who were one of the first five stores in the country to carry polo by Ralph Lauren, that I got to meet Ralph. Um, he came down the following year when I was 16. He came down to do a Red Cross fashion show. It was Valentine's Day, and it was on a Friday. And up to that point, I'd had perfect attendance in, in school, elementary school, junior high school, high school. Um, but I told my parents, you're going to write a note. It's Friday. You're going to write a note. I'm not going to school because I'm going to meet Ralph Lauren. <laughs> and... Strangely enough, they did. <laughs> they seem to, this is a pattern. They seem to keep listening to you. Well, I, I guess I was aggressively bossy. I don't know. But in any event, they wrote the note, and I ended up going into the store, and, and Dave and Ricky told me to pick Ralph up. I just got my driver's license. And they said, uh, take the company station wagon and pick Ralph up at the airport, which I was like, are you kidding me? And they're like, no, no, here are the keys. Go. Oh, pick him up. You are such a fan. They had told Ralph about me. Um, and um, so I spent the next two days with Ralph Lauren in the store as he's doing this, you know, in-store appearance. And he said to me, when you, when you come up next year to look at colleges, I want you to talk to me. Come see me. I might have a job for you. Well, that's all I needed to hear. And that's subsequently what happened. And so I'm curious, the RISD application was after this moment? The RISD application was after that moment. So the fact you didn't just write hell no across the application <laughs> no, then said No, 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 I, 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 I could, I could, 
no, I couldn't do that, especially since my parents were paying the application fees, which I think were like $35 in those days. God knows what they are today. But, um, you know, I did apply to FIT, and I did apply to, to Pratt, and I got accepted to both, both schools. I really wanted to go to Parsons because Parsons had um, this great relationship with designers who came as critics. Chief of them, Norman Norell, and I was the biggest Norman Norell fan. So just the chance to work with him and meet him was, you know, catnip to me. Um, but in those days, Parsons was in a office building. They had two floors in an office building on East 54th Street. They had no dorm facilities. It was very overcrowded. It is a, a, a private college, so it was expensive. Um, and my parents were willing to go for the money, but when my mother saw they had no dorm whatsoever, and in the student handbook, it recommended that you live at the Y for the first three or four weeks of school until you met someone in your class that you wanted to become roommates with, and then you would go out and get an apartment. At age 17, she was not, as they say, not having it. <laughs> She was not, and I, I, I'm sure if I pushed them a little, I could have, you know, done that, but I just decided, you know, you've got to choose your battles. Yeah. So I decided to go to Pratt, which was a lovely, lovely school, a great experience. I loved all of my, you know, my, my history of art courses and my literature courses, and the fact they had a campus and it was a real sort of college life, uh, but... The most important thing to me was that I was working three days a week for Ralph Lauren, and that was exciting, and I was certainly learning more uh, about fashion uh, on those three days of working than, than, than I was at school. And that's ultimately why after two years I transferred to Parsons, because I just felt if I'm going to stay in school, I need to be challenged. And I wasn't feeling that I was being challenged enough at Pratt. So, um, so to just back up a little bit, so Ralph Lauren said to you, give me a call once you come up. I may have a job for you. And clearly he did. And I, I, it was, it was uh, St. Patrick's Day in 1971. Uh, it was a typical spring day in that it was about 35, 40 degrees the day before when I was looking at schools with my mother. And then on St. Patrick's Day, which we completely forgot that it was St. Patrick's Day, and Ralph's office was uh, just off of Fifth Avenue on 55th Street, so we had to fight our way through the parade. And of course, typical New York spring, it was like almost 70 degrees in one fell swoop. And of course, I'm in the outfit I had planned for weeks, you know, my polo canvas safari raincoat with tartan wool liner over camel's hair, sport coat with Harris tweed pants, Schwitzing like you cannot believe in this, you know, this uh, subterranean heat, and we got to the we got to the door at 40 West 55th, and I said to my mother, "Now you go to Baumanteller, the safari room, and I'll meet you in an hour." And my mother said, "Oh no no no, I, I have to meet this Ralph Lauren. I don't know who he is. I can't have you working for someone I don't." And I said, uh, "I'm going on a job interview. You're going to Baumanteller." <laughs> And we stood there arguing, and I'm sure you could hear over the din of the parade going by, you could hear us yelling at each other. And finally, I just turned away from her and walked in, just left her standing on the street. Um, <laughs> and went inside, and with my portfolio of sketches, which, by the way, Ralph never looked at, we spent really? the next hour and a half talking about Catherine Hepburn and Audrey Hepburn and Cary Grant, Fred Astaire, and everything we liked about fashion, didn't like about fashion. And at the end of the conversation, he says, um, I'll call you in a couple of days, but I think you have the job. And that was that. And then, of course, I looked at my watch and realized my mother probably thought I was dead. <laughs> and ran. And why and, not run after that? That's what she was thinking. And ran the block and a half to Bob would tell her, you know, to, 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 to get her. Um, and sure enough, a few weeks later, he called and said, you've got the job. So that was that. Um, just a little aside, funny little story. So once I bullied Pratt, which clearly I bullied them into this schedule, I figured out 
all the credits I needed to take, and I figured out I could do them in two days, on Tuesdays and Thursdays, by going to class from 8 o'clock in the morning till 10 o'clock at night with no break. But that gave me Monday, Wednesday, and Friday free to work. And so when I called Ralph to give him the schedule of what I what I was gonna, when I was gonna be available to, to come into work, he said, are you going to your prom? And I said, yeah. And he said, what are you wearing? And I said, you know, I'm having a really hard time. Because of course, I wanted to look like Fred Astaire. This was 1971, the era of powder blue tuxedos with matching ruffle shirts and, you know, patent leather platform sole boots in pale blue. Um, and that was not, what I wanted to look like. And so when I said this to Ralph, he asked me what size I was. I told him, he says, oh, that's my size. He's a short, I'm a regular. <laughs> and even though I was shorter then than I am now, I was still taller than him. But um, we were the same shoe size and the same shirt size and the same suit size. Uh, and he said, I'll send you my tuxedo. And I wore his tuxedo to my high school prom. Now, the other curious thing is that 1971, there was no FedEx. FedEx did not exist as a company. So if you wanted something to come, you know, within the same day, you put it on a Greyhound bus. They put it in the undercarriage of the bus as, as a cargo. And then you went to the bus station to pick it up. And so Ralph's office packed up his tuxedo, his shoes, his tie, his shirt, sent it to me on the Greyhound bus, and I went to pick it up. What an amazing story. And you never gave it back, right? No, of course I gave it back. <laughs> after, after, I let the, after I let the hem of the pants down, because I was taller, and then let them back up again. But of course I gave it back. I'm joking. <laughs> well, uh, another uh, job that you had... Um, Right, right after that, correct, mm -hmm. um, was working with Calvin Klein right. as well. Would you tell us a little bit about that? Well, how that came about was I switched schools two years in. I switched to Parsons. And unlike Pratt, Parsons said, you have to come to school every day. You have to come from 9 o'clock until 2.30. What a crazy idea. You're enrolled. Can you imagine? You actually have to show up. I have to show up. And they were pretty strict about it. I couldn't sort of talk my way around it. Um, but from, you know, 2.30 on, my life was my own. So I would go to work every day. I'd get there by 3 o'clock. I'd take the subway. Uh, Parsons was downtown. I'd come uptown to, to, to go to work. However, when we were working on a collection or show, I might be there till 2, 3 in the morning, go home, do homework for an hour or so, sleep for a half an hour, get up, take a shower, and do it all over again. Well, I was a zombie. I mean, after a few weeks of that, I was falling asleep at work. I was falling asleep at school. And I knew I had to make a decision. Ralph said, you have to make a decision. And of course, he wanted me to quit school because he said the whole point of going to school is to get the job you already have as my assistant. Um, my parents said, by that time, they were pretty confident that I knew what I was doing and what I wanted to do. And they said, it's up to you. But I knew deep down it would break their heart if I didn't get my degree and finish. And I had only about a year left of school. So I made the tough decision to quit working for Ralph. He was furious with me. I was very upset about it. But I thought it was the right thing to do. And I kind of figured if I was as good as I thought I was, he'd hire me back eventually anyway. So. This resolve lasted about three months, and maybe not even three months, and I was in class one day, and Mrs. Kagi, the chairman of the fashion design department, came in to class, and she said in a very gruff way, Calvin Klein is on the phone for you in my office. And I went into her office, and he, we knew each other socially, and he said, I understand you're not working for Ralph. I want you to come work for me. I explained the whole situation, why I wasn't working for Ralph. He said, have lunch with me at Bill's. Bill's was the equivalent to Sardi's for the in the fashion world, where you sat underneath the designer's picture <laughs> and had lunch. So I had lunch with him the next day at Bill's, and uh, we went back to his showroom, and he showed me his new line. 
And he basically said, I will pay you a weekly salary. You come when you have the time. If it's only on Saturday or only on Sunday or, you know, if you have work, school work, and you can't come, just call and say, I can't come in. So he was willing to pay me whether I showed up or not. And I thought that was the proverbial, you know, offer you can't refuse because I, I felt it was a way of keeping my hand in working in the business, not for the money. I mean, you know, my, my parents paid for school and everything and all the money I made for made working for Ralph was my money, which of course I promptly spent on clothes. But, <laughs> but um, uh, I don't know, I just thought it was a great opportunity, you know? And so I did that for the last year of school and my first year out of school. And, um, we had played with the idea of doing menswear at Calvin. Um, you know, we put men's things in the women's show on, you know, models, but we never planned to manufacture them. And, of course, loving menswear, I kept pushing Calvin to go into it. And eventually uh, he did decide to do it, he and Barry, and they made a deal with the company up in Rochester, New York, and Calvin came to me and said, I'm taking you out of the women's side of the business. And I was in charge of all the licenses, designing. So I did the scarves, I did the furs, I did the belts, I did the umbrellas for Mespo, I did the bed linens, I designed all of the licensed uh, uh, products, uh, as well as worked on the, the, the main ready-to-wear collection. And he said, I'm taking you away from all of that, you're gonna be vice president of men's wear design. That's gonna be your area. And I was all of 22 years of age. I mean, it was an incredible position. And, and I was, of course, very excited. And I started to put together mood boards and so forth. And um, the deal fell through. Barry wanted more money. I, I don't know exactly all of the particulars, but the deal fell through. And Calvin said, don't worry. You'll just go back to doing what you were doing. But less than a week later, the people who were going to do the deal with Calvin called me at home. How they found my home number, I have no idea, but they called me and they said, we know that you were going to be the one designing this collection and we'd like to back you and do uh, a collection of menswear. Now, had they seen your boards yet? Or they, had, they, they had, they had, they um, had. And I was in a real quandary. I mean, I had a great job working for a great guy, you know, who was very well known and was doing very well. Um, and, and yet I got this incredible offer and I was 22 years of age. I mean, it's really, really young. And so I asked Calvin to go out to dinner and I forewarned him. I said, I'm not hitting you up for a raise. I'm very happy with the money I'm getting. I need your advice. And when we sat down to dinner, I said, I told him what had happened about this offer, and I said, I don't know what to do. And he turned to me and he said, you'd be a fool not to do this. He said, it's a great opportunity for you, and worse comes to worse, it doesn't work out, you can always come back, oh, which was wow. an incredible piece of advice. And that's what I did, and that's why I'm here today. And <laughs> <laughs> wow, wow. Um, so, with your own line, mm -hmm. uh, you have been awarded a Cody Award not only once, but twice. Yeah. What is it like when your peers look at what you've done and say, you know what, you did it the best this time? Well, I mean, it was extraordinary for me because it happened so early. I mean, that very first year of, of designing on my own, um, I not only was I nominated for best designer of the year, menswear, which I didn't think I would get, and I didn't get. But I was also awarded a special Cody, the very first one ever, for my men's fur collection, which I'd done with Alexander, the people who had produced Calvin's women's collection. I had always teased them and said, you really should do a men's line. And a month before they were supposed to show, they came to me and said, you've always talked about wanting to do this. Okay, do it kind of thing. And I mean, I was just shocked. I mean, I was really, I had just shown my men's collection and now I was told do a men's fur collection. And I, I remember saying to them, how many styles? And they said, oh, 10. I said, okay, great. I went home, 
started sketching. Went back to them 7.30 the next morning. I said, could we do 15? And they said, okay, kind of grudgingly. The day of the show, we had 31 styles. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> Many of the coats I literally saw for the first time as I was putting them on on the, uh, on the uh, models. And, of course, this was the other fortuitous thing that happened. I had no assistant. I had no one working for me. I was doing everything myself. Um, and it was a group show. Alexander always had a group show of all their designers. Givenchy, Saint Laurent, Calvin, Viola Silbert, and me <laughs> at the end. Um, and all the other designers had, you know, assistants and PR people and stuff, and it was just me by myself. And one of the, uh, one of the PR firms that had been hired was a, a, a firm called Hathaway de la Chapelle, and Doria de la Chapelle saw me sort of flailing, <laughs> trying to dress 31 guys, you know, uh, all by myself, and she came over to help me, even though she was not being paid to do so. And that's how we met. And that's how you met. And that's how we met, yep. Well, speaking of which, uh, Doria, mm -hmm. uh, so that friendship also led to some extraordinary creative projects together. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so besides being a designer, um, you're you're also an author. Yes. Um, of not one but several books, and your first book was a book on tartan. Tartan. And what uh, what attracted you to that subject, and how did that book come about? I, I had always been obsessed since I was a small child with tartan plaid. Now, ask me why a black kid from Washington D.C. is obsessed with Scotland's national fabric. You know. I couldn't figure that out. And I thought, well, maybe if I write a book about it, I'll be able to figure out why, why this obsession. Not only for myself, but all over the world. I mean, if you go to Korea, they love tartan plaid. If you go to Japan, they're crazy about it. You go to Milan, every well-dressed Milanese architect, lawyer, doctor has a tartan line raincoat and several tartan mufflers. And clearly, they're not Scottish. So um, the, the, the whole idea was to sort of really dig deep because every book I'd ever read about tartan plaid, they were all basically the same. It was like how to find your family's clan. You know, I mean, they were interchangeable. Um, and I really wanted, uh, both Dory and I, we wanted a real almost psychological study of A, where did tartan come from? And B, why are we all so attracted to it? And although I'd been mulling the idea over in my head for, for many years and had been saving folders of articles and pictures and so forth, it wasn't until right after 9-11, um, Bill Cunningham, uh, the, the fantastic journalist and, and photographer for the New York Times, in his Sunday Styles uh, section, um, just... Just around Thanksgiving, he had pictures of people on the street. Um, now, it had not been a particularly big year for tartan fashion-wise, but Tiffany's had done tartan windows, um, and Bill had pictures of people on the street with their tartan coats and mufflers and hats and scarves, and he surmised that because the USA and New York in particular had been so devastated by 9-11 that the wearing of tartan was a way to hold on to something that was both familiar and familial, um, and that we were longing for something that was traditional because our world had been rocked and turned upside down. And it was in reading that that really crystallized for me, okay, now I have to do this book. And a um, short time later, I was, in, uh, I was in London and thinking about the book on the plane. And of course, every, uh, every one of my British friends, you know, part of going, I had to go for a wedding. And, and I was sort of relieved to get away from New York as much as I love New York, um, because I was just, you were just inundated by 9-11. 
And of course, I got to London, and every time someone heard my American accent, all they want to know was, "Do you live in New York? And what's it like? And you know what's going on?" And of course, you couldn't not talk to people about it. And I was thinking about the book, and then I had this this brilliant idea to ask Rosemary Bravo, who was then CEO of Burberry, and who I knew from her tenure at Saks Fifth Avenue if she might consider writing the foreword to the book, because I thought if I could get her to write the foreword to the book, then I could sell the idea to a potential publisher. And I called her up and she said, come over tomorrow. And I literally had a one page handwritten outline of this proposed idea for a book. And she read it and she said, I love the idea. I would definitely do it. And that was it. That was, those two things were the sort of linchpin to, 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 to creating and, and working on the book. As I might have mentioned to you earlier, it took five years to write it. Um, and, and, um, but Rizzoli um, published it. Charles Myers really loved the book. He actually ordered up thousands more copies than I ever thought anyone would do for a first time author. Um, I mean, it was really a huge uh, first order because usually they only order like a thousand books or something. And um, we launched the book at Saks. Burberry uh, underwrote the launch. We had, you know, past hors d'oeuvres and, and bartenders and uh, uh, disco. And people said it was like Studio 54 without the drugs. I mean, <laughs> they, it was just an incredible opening. And we had about 700 people show up for this. Uh, I, during night, just, we couldn't even get up to go to the bathroom. I mean, we just sat there for three and a half hours signing books. You're popular, man. And the next, <laughs> the next morning, Ron Frash, who was then the vice president of Zach's, called me and said, you need to run for office. Yeah. And I said, what are you talking about? He said, Jeffrey, in the history of Zach's, we've never had an event like that before. And they all bought books. So, um, so that was that was it. But again, even with all of that, I thought I'm never going to do that again. But the seal was broken. The seal was broken. The and? seal, was, and I guess like childbirth, you forget the pain. <laughs> and then what uh, what inspired you on the next book? After? Um, well, the next book is kind of a variation on what I had wanted to do. I'd wanted to do a book, which I still might do. Uh, about iconic American fashion. Um, I feel that in this country, we don't get enough credit. It's always the Italians, it's always the French. And there's so many things that we have invented uh, from a fashion point of view that the rest of the world wears. But as I was sort of preparing this idea, uh, Charles Myers, my publisher, said, you should do a serious book about preppy dressing. Now, I knew that there was in the works at that time an update to the Preppy Handbook. Uh, Chip Kidd was working on that. Um, but I also knew that that book would be a different tone from what we wanted to do, because that book is a sort of satiric look at the Biffs and Muffies of this world. Um, and I really wanted to do a real treatise on where did Preppy fashion spring from. Um, and so we did. And we did it fairly quickly. It didn't take five, five years. Um, and you know, I, I'm happy to say all the books I've done are still in print, you know. Uh, and that one did very well. Um, the, the, the lovely thing about that book is that we got Lily Pulitzer to, to do uh, the foreword shortly before she passed away. So really the last pictures of, of Lily Pulitzer are the pictures in uh, the picture of her, the portrait of her in the book that her grandson did for us. Wonderful, wonderful. Well, it's a gorgeous book. Um, Thank you. You also have um, done something with, with the incredible Patricia Underwood, mm -hmm. um, and you also have a book on Norman Norell, who you mentioned earlier. Right, right. Well, the, the, the first book sort of in that direction was a biography of Perry Ellis. Perry had been a great friend of mine. Our career started at precisely the same time. I had been to every one of his shows from his very first show to his very last show. 
And I really felt if I don't do this book, he will be forgotten in the annals of fashion. People think that Perry Ellis is a menswear brand, which it is, a very successful menswear brand. But most people today, especially young people, have no idea that Perry Ellis designed women's wear and was primarily known as a women's wear designer and was incredibly innovative. I like to think that he was sort of like the American McQueen. McQueen's career lasted 12 years. Perry's, Perry did in 10 years, he did a lifetime's worth of fashion. It was only 10 years. It's only really 10 years. And, and he designed uh, menswear, womenswear, children's wear, patterns, knitting patterns, home, fragrance, shoes, hosiery. I mean, to do all of that, and to do it as well as he did, I thought was a remarkable accomplishment. And so I wanted to do a book really for his memory uh, and for the love I had for him as a friend. Um, I did that book, and I remember taking the very first copy over uh, to Patricia Underwood to show her. Patricia had been incredibly helpful to me in doing the book. She had done all of Perry's hats. For, for most of his career, and she had been a longtime friend of mine, too, for almost as long as I'd known Perry. And I showed her the book, and she burst into tears when she looked at the cover, and I completely forgot on the cover of the book was one of the hats that she had done. You know, you, you, when you're working on a book, you get so sort of tunnel vision, you forget that. And um, her husband happened to be at her house um, when I showed her, and he pulled me aside and he said, Patricia's going to be celebrating 40 years in the hat business. And uh, to commemorate that, I gave her two choices. I said, I could buy you a really expensive piece of jewelry or I could get a book done for you. And she said, I'd like a book done and I'd like Jeffrey to do it. So literally, as I'm showing her the first copy of the Perry Ellis book, I got my sort of next commission. And we found out that there was going to be another book uh, coming out uh, uh, with another one of the great, there are three real, really great milliners, I think, working today. There's Stephen Jones, there's Patricia, and there is, um, what's the other one? They're all British, uh, Irish and two Brits. The name is escaping me, but... In any event, I knew that one of them was coming out with the book, and so we wanted to get our book out before. So it was, it was a bit of a rush, but it came out beautifully. And, uh, you know, it, it, was, it was interesting because Perry Ellis was no longer alive. Patricia was very much alive, you know, and so you're working with someone who is alive. You want to make sure that you please them and that they're happy with it, but you also have to take a step back and be somewhat objective. And the fact that it was as successful as it was and that she was as happy as she was with the book really made me feel good. And of course, my biggest fear was that she wouldn't like it and we'd no longer be friends. <laughs> so, uh, so and I was, then she wouldn't want that piece of jewelry. Exactly, exactly. So. I was, very, I was very happy that she was pleased. And I have to say, up to that point, um, that book came out in April of 2015 and went back into a second printing in June, which was very, very quick. Um, and then Norell, which had been a sort of long-term uh, goal of mine. I really wanted to do Norella's the second book that you I did. You talked about it. Oh, I, I, I'd always wanted to do a book simply because no one else had done a book about him and because I had so revered him since I was a child. Um, there have been anthologies about uh, American fashion where they include Clara McArdle and people like that and Adrian and, of course, uh, Tregier and Norell, you know, and he would get two or three pages, but no one had done a book, a whole book about, about Norell. And again, I felt like if I don't do this and do this quickly, all the people that I would like to speak to will no longer be here. I mean, he died in 1972. Um, and sadly, many of the people I wanted to speak with, like Bill Cunningham, who I told I was doing the book, passed away while I was doing it, so I couldn't speak to them. And Gillis McGill, the famous model, model model's agent, who is a great friend of Norell, most of Norell's models, people like Yvonne Presser, um, passed away while we were in thinking about it. Uh, but fortunately, Denise Linden, who's the last of the original 
the, the well, not the original, the second tier of Norell girls. She's 85, still very much alive and very wonderful. I spent hours with her working on it. And I'm very proud of it because, um, because mainly because <laughs> originally Charles did not want to do the book. He didn't, I mean, I did an elaborate presentation um, uh, for it. And he just said, nobody's interested in that. Nobody wants to read that. And what I found out when we finally, when I finally did convince him, I'll tell you that story in a second, um, was that there was this incredible pent up de demand. This book went into a second printing in less than a month. Um, and I, I, I can't tell you the number of letters and emails messages I got from people, thank God you did this. I've been waiting a lifetime for a Norell book. So it made me feel really great, good great, that, great that it was the great instinct. And um, what happened was at the book launch for Patricia's book, which we did at the Ralph Lauren Women's Store, Ralph came, um, was wonderful. We had a crowd of about 500 people. Then we flew to California and, and did it the next day in Beverly Hills at the Beverly Hills store. Um, but um, at, the, at the party, uh, which was held at Swifties, um, Charles Myers, the publisher, came over to me and he said, you can do anything you want now. And I said, hold that thought. And I went and gathered about five people around. And I said, now repeat that. I've got witnesses. <laughs> and the next day, I saw, uh, as I'm leaving to, to go on the plane, I wrote, we're doing Norell. That's the next book. You know, you said anything I, I wanted. And that's how it came to be. And uh, as I say, it went into a second printing in a month's time, which is, for a coffee table book is extraordinary. That's incredible. Yeah. No, and well, your books are all so beautiful. Um, I'm curious, um, you're, you're a designer who's worked across a lot of uh, different categories. Mm -hmm. um, is there a category that you haven't worked in that you would like to? Um, not really. I mean, the, for the longest time, the one area of design that I hadn't done, I'd done men's, women's, and children's very successfully. I did a boys wear line in the 80s. I won an Ernie Award, which was the fashion world's Oscar for that. The, the first time out, uh, I think Norma Kamali won for girls and I won for boys. Um, I love women's wear and have done that. And I love men's wear and have done that. I had not done home. Curiously, I had not done home. And right after the Tartan book came out, I was having dinner with my great friend, Mindy Grossman, who had just started been at HSN maybe a year. And she said she'd bought like 25 books and given them as Christmas gifts. And would I ever think about or consider doing a line of gifts and things for the home in Tartan Plaid? And I said, that's a great idea. It was a Friday night, cold winter Friday night. We finished dinner. I got home about 10.30, I started sketching. The next thing I knew it was like 6.15 in the morning. I'd been up all night. I scanned the sketches, I emailed them to her at like 6.25 and like 6.30 a.m. I get an email back. These are wonderful, let's get started Monday morning first thing. So that put me into the home and gift category, which I you know, had only dreamed about doing and now have done successfully for over 10 years at HSN. And the thing I love about it is that you're able to do things that are great quality, that look great, have great style, but aren't expensive. I mean, you know, um, and I've come to really appreciate that, you know, style is not necessarily, and chicness is not necessarily, you know, super expensive. It's, um, you know, my definition of luxury has changed. To me, what luxury means, luxury is anything that saves you time so that you can do the things you really want to do. And whether that's taking care of something or whether that's being able to order it online, you know, or, or whether that means something that doesn't cost so much so that you have the money to take that vacation that you want to do, uh, that to me is modern luxury. Um, and, and it's really fun. It's really fun to give style to people who don't necessarily have huge, vast amounts of money. Well, you are such a talented designer, and anything that you touch is 
bound to be beautiful. Um, I'm curious, Jeffrey, is there another book happening? There is. There. <laughs> well, everybody has been talking to me for years now that I should do a book about my life because they say it's just I so rich. It's, <laughs> it's so rich with so many twists and turns. And I don't know. I, I, part of me agrees with them, and part of me feels like, oh, it's so egocentric to do that. So it's definitely something I've been thinking about. Um, the other thing is that um, with the death of my great friend, Michael Volbrecht, Michael had been working on a book that I and several other people had suggested that he do based on his Facebook, his daily Facebook post. And so now I'm trying to shape that along with a gentleman named Stephen Cohen, shape that into a narrative that could be published. It, it, as it exists right now, it's not. So that probably, and this is breaking news, um, that probably will be the next vehicle, even though it wasn't sort of planned to be. But, I mean, Michael's work is extraordinary. I mean, he was an illustrator, an artist, a raconteur, an entertainer, and a designer. Um, and so if we can do him justice and, and put that together in the right way with the right publisher, um, that, that will be the next effort. Uh, and once that's out of the way, then I'll probably have no excuses for doing <laughs> doing the other book. All right. Well, we want to see both of them. Um, so before we wrap, uh, uh, Jeffrey, I am going to ask you something that we ask all of our guests here on NAC Chat, mm -hmm. and that is, if you could be a piece of art in any medium and from any period, mm -hmm. what might you be? A John Singer Sargent portrait. I'm crazy for his for his portraits, for his art. I, I think they're so beautiful, men and women. Um, uh, they're they're like photographs that are paintings. Um, you know, I, I I I just love his work, and um, I think if I could be a piece of art, I would love to because they're they're timeless in a way. As are you, Jeffrey Banks. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. NAC Chat is produced with the support of the National Arts Club Board of Governors and Education Committee. Interviewers include Charlotte Kent, David Zyla, and Steve Cass. The NAC Chat logo is designed by Nadine Heidinger. The music is composed by Kevin Bernstein. All speakers are invited at the behest of our 16 arts committees. The National Arts Club is a members club and arts nonprofit whose mission is to stimulate, foster, and promote public interest in the arts and educate the American public in the fine arts. You can learn more at our website, nationalartsclub.org, and our Facebook and Instagram, at the National Arts Club.